All right. He is risen? He is risen indeed. He is risen? He is risen indeed. Amen. All right, let's try to put ourselves in that first Easter morning by reading from the Gospel of John. This is from uh, John 20, starting in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then skipping ahead to verse 19, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So my hope this morning is that we can share a little bit in that joy that the disciples felt on that first Easter You know, one of the great things about Easter Sunday is that it's a day when it's not unusual for people to come to church who don't ordinarily come. Uh, Sometimes people come just out of a sense of tradition or obligation. Uh, Some people come because family members want them to come. Uh, And many who come don't really know what they believe for sure about God and Jesus and the resurrection. And if that's you, I'm really glad you're here. Um, And if that's you, I don't want to miss the opportunity to challenge you to take the resurrection seriously. When we say he is risen, he is risen indeed, uh, we are declaring our belief in a historical event. We're not just giving voice to some uh, myth or fable or uh, some sort of nice symbol. Uh, We're talking about something that we believe really did happen, a historical event. Christianity is a faith that is rooted in historical claims, and the resurrection is probably the most significant of those claims. The Apostle Paul said that if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then Christians are to be pitied more than anybody else, uh, and our faith is actually just in vain. So Christianity is a faith that stands or falls on a historical claim. Now, if you find that historical claim hard to believe, I don't blame you, okay? It's a miracle. A guy came back from the dead. That is the claim. That is a remarkable claim. But I want to encourage you. Don't just say, oh, that's crazy, and dismiss it or ignore it. Seek the truth. Investigate. Explore. The two disciples who go to Jesus' tomb, I think, are a great example for us 
with this. They didn't really know what was going on, but they heard the tomb is empty. And what did they do? They go on this frantic dash. It's like they're racing each other to, to see who can get there first and figure out what's going on. And we should be like that, right? Curious, running towards the truth, seeking the truth, pursuing it. And, you know, the claim that Jesus' tomb was empty is actually one of the historical claims that people, whether they're Christian or not, almost all agree on, that on Easter morning, Jesus' tomb was empty. And so we owe it to ourselves to investigate why was the tomb empty? Did Jesus really rise? That possibility is too good not to explore. And I believe that if you explore if you seek honestly, you'll find that there are a lot of good reasons to believe that the resurrection really was a genuine historical event. Now, if you're looking for 100% certainty, you're not going to find it. In fact, if you're looking for 100% certainty of any historical event, you can't find it. That's why no matter what historical claims people make, there's always some conspiracy theorist who says, oh no, that didn't really happen, right? So 100% certainty from history, by examining history, is always something that eludes us. But if you pursue the truth, you will find solid, historical, rational reasons to believe in the resurrection. And if, you're in, if you want to pursue that, which I, I, I challenge you to investigate more, a book that can be really helpful is this one called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus uh, by Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona. And they have an approach that I really appreciate. They call it the minimal facts approach, where they say, okay, let's just take the basic facts that all historians tend to agree on, whether they're Christian or not, secular or not, and let's say, if we just assume these basic minimal facts, what is the best explanation for these things? And they argue that the explanation that makes the most sense is that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time this morning trying to uh, prove the resurrection. I'm more interested in talking about what the resurrection means. But if you're one of those people who came here and you're skeptical, I want to give you three things to think about. Okay? Again, I can't prove the resurrection, but three things that I think should inspire you to investigate this further and not just be dismissive. So, number one reason to take the resurrection seriously. The resurrection accounts aren't the kind of accounts that people would have made up. There's things about them that if you were just trying to construct some propaganda, this is bad propaganda. Um, For example, all of the resurrection accounts have the first eyewitnesses as being women. And you might say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, in the first century, the testimony of women was not considered trustworthy. I know, that's stupid, but that's the way it was. So if you were fabricating an account, it would work against your best interests in the first century, if you wanted people to believe, to make women the first witnesses. Okay. And so the better explanation here is not that this is fabricated, not that it's made up, but that this is an actual recounting of history. And that's just one example of why these accounts are not the kind of accounts you would make up. There's many more, but that's one thing to get you thinking. Another reason to take the resurrection seriously, multiple Jewish leaders have claimed to be the Messiah, but Jesus is the only one we remember. Did you know that? That... Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, but he's not the only person in history who claimed to be the Messiah. 
the scholar N.T. Wright says that a hundred years before Jesus and a hundred years after Jesus, there were at least 10 messianic movements, significant, significant messianic movements uh, in Israel. And when the leaders of those movements died, so did the movements. But after Jesus was crucified, that messianic movement, the followers continued to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and they went on to spread his message all over the world. So you have to ask yourself, what made this messianic movement different from all the rest? What was the thing that inspired Jesus' followers to continue the message after their Messiah's death? And the disciples would tell you that the thing that inspired them was that they saw Jesus come back, that he rose from the dead. And then finally, one third point to consider. Jesus' disciples suffered and many gave their lives to spread the faith. You know, we all know people lie about stuff all the time, right? People lie about miraculous stuff, supernatural stuff. But usually when people lie, it's to gain something, right? To gain money, fame, power, comfort. But Jesus' disciples did not gain those things. Uh, by worldly standards, they actually didn't gain anything. They lost everything. But even though they lost everything, and people say most of them lost their lives, um, they held fast to proclaiming this idea that Jesus rose from the dead, that they had actually seen the risen Jesus. Now, why would that be if not because they really did believe that they had seen him? So, we could spend all morning talking about evidences for the resurrection, uh, but what I really want to talk about is why the resurrection matters. And hopefully, if you're curious, that inspires you to investigate more. So, why does the resurrection matter? Well, when we think about the resurrection, the first word that I want to come to our minds is victory. Victory. Resurrection equals victory. Now that raises the question, well, victory over what, right? Well, there are three major opponents that we all face in life. Three enemies. And the resurrection shows us that Jesus had victory over all three of those opponents. And it gives us hope that through Jesus, we too can have victory over all these opponents. So, let's talk about what they are. The first opponent is death. Maybe that's the most obvious one. Death, not to be morbid, but death is a horrible fact of life. Uh, all of us, young and old, are in the same boat, right? Uh, all of us, our bodies are slowly, and in some cases, quickly, uh, breaking down. And eventually, they stop working. And if death is the end of life, then life is tragic, fundamentally tragic. You cannot convince me otherwise <laughs> of that. If death is really the end, then the culmination of our lives, the culmination of all of our striving and all of our suffering and all of our work is just complete and total loss, right? We lose all the possessions that we've acquired. 
We lose all of the character we've developed. We lose all of the memories that we've made. We lose all of the relationships that we've cultivated. We lose all the skills that we've practiced. All of it's gone. And that's terrible. And if we're honest, something about that feels deeply wrong. I've noticed that some people try to deny the awfulness of death. And I find the things that they say very unconvincing. Uh, I'll give an example. There was an article that an NPR commentator named Aaron Freeman wrote, and some non-religious people like to have this read at their funerals. Uh, and the article is called, You Want a Physicist to Speak at Your Funeral. And uh, I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read part of it to give you an idea of what it's like. So you want a physicist to speak at your funeral. You want the physicist to talk to your grieving family about the conservation of energy so they will understand that your energy has not died. You want the physicist to remind your sobbing mother about the first law of thermodynamics, that no energy gets created in the universe and none is destroyed. You want your mother to know that all your energy, every vibration, every BTU of heat, every wave of every particle that was her beloved child remains with her in this world. And the physicist will remind the congregation of how much of all our energy is given off as heat. There may be a few fanning themselves with their programs as he says it. And he will tell them that the warmth that flowed through you in life is still here still part of all that we are, even as we who mourn continue the heat of our own lives. And you'll want the physicist to explain to those who loved you that they need not have faith. Indeed, they should not have faith. Let them know that they can measure, that scientists have measured precisely the conservation of energy and found it accurate, verifiable, and consistent across space and time. According to the law of the conservation of energy, not a bit of you is gone. You're just less orderly. So you know what I think? I think this is garbage. Okay, if a physicist tried to comfort me with this at a funeral, I would tell them to get lost. I would say, physicist, I didn't love energy, or heat, or photons. I loved a person. I loved a relationship. And that person is no longer accessible to me. See, that's why I mourn. Don't reduce my loved one to the heat I'm trying to fan away with my program. It's not comforting to me to think that the physical, the physical energy that made up my loved one is still around in some disordered, unconscious form. Because the person isn't still around. You might as well say, oh, I'm sorry that your loved one died, but don't be sad. Look, the body is right here. All the particles that made them up are lying here, motionless and unconscious, never to move again. So be comforted. Nothing is lost. That's ridiculous, right? And as far as I'm concerned, this article just emphasizes how little comfort the world has to offer in the face of death. How little hope. All it's got is, oh, the photons and BTUs and energy that made you up will continue. The consciousness will be gone. The memories will be gone. The character will be gone. The love will be gone. The relationship will be gone. But, oh, disordered materiality, yay. That will go on. 
if we're not in denial, the physicist's words here can't comfort us. They don't work. The only thing that can truly comfort us, the only thing that can keep life from being fundamentally tragic is the hope of resurrection. The hope that something is stronger than the power of death. Something is stronger than this force that turns us into disordered materiality. Something else I want us to notice is how thoroughly Jesus beats death. Because Jesus doesn't just live on as a spirit, right? Jesus comes back in a body, a physical body, a body that can eat and touch and and be touched. And that's very significant because sometimes we think of victory over death just as existing spiritually, as continuing to exist as a spirit. But that's not true victory over death. Because God made us to be both physical and spiritual beings. And if death robs us of physicality, then death is victorious. Death is won. True victory over death means that our bodies live too. And that's the kind of victory that Jesus had, right? His physical body was restored. And think about that. That's amazing. Because Jesus' body was whipped and scourged, right? He had nails driven through his hands and his feet, and a spear was put through his side. And yet death still did not have victory over his physical body. His body was still repaired. And I think some of us might need that encouragement this morning. You know, maybe you feel like your body's breaking down beyond repair, And if that's the case, take heart, because I bet it's not as broken as Jesus' was on the cross. And Jesus' body still was repaired, still came back. And so there's hope for your body, too. 1 Corinthians 15, 22-23 says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes those who belong to him. That term first fruits, that's an agricultural term, and it refers to the first part of a harvest. And so what Paul is saying here, what he wants us to realize is that Jesus' resurrection is just the first part of a much larger resurrection. And, And Jesus is the first part of that resurrection, and when he returns a second time, all those who belong to him will be resurrected just like he was resurrected. So we're supposed to look at Jesus' resurrection, see his victory over death, and then have faith that through him, one day, we too can experience that victory. Life does not have to be viewed as fundamentally tragic. We don't have to try to comfort ourselves by convincing ourselves that unconscious, disordered energy is just as good as a human person. Jesus has a victory over death. Okay, second opponent that Jesus' resurrection demonstrates victory over is sin. Sin. Now, what exactly is this opponent of sin? Sin isn't really a very uh, popular concept in our culture today, but it's a very important one. Sin is the tendency that we have to ignore God's good design for our lives the tendency that we have to to rebel against it. It's a tendency that we have to think of ourselves as God, 
and to not allow God's wisdom, our creator's wisdom, to direct our lives, but to trust more in our own wisdom. And this tendency causes incredible harm, right? Harm to ourselves, harm to those around us, and actually affects the entire creation, the whole world. And this tendency that we have towards sin is very, very strong. It's sometimes just an overwhelming compulsion. Even when we know what's right, even when we want to do what's right, sin has this this power over us sometimes that leads us to do the wrong thing. The Apostle Paul, I think, expresses this really well. He says, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. And this is the Apostle Paul, right? By our standards, this is a really, a really moral, upright guy. Surely many of us can identify with what he's expressing there, right? Surely we've had a time where we did something wrong and then we think back on it and we're just like, what was I thinking? I didn't even want to do that. Why did I do that? That's sin. That's an enemy that all of us face. It's the enemy within. Now, Jesus' resurrection demonstrates that he had victory over sin. Why is that? Well, the reason is because there's a connection between sin and death. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. So in other words, when we sin, death is what we earn. If you, you had a job and your job was to sin, the just payment of that would be you get your paycheck and it says death. The inevitable consequence of sin is death. So when Jesus comes back from the dead, this is the way you should think about this, when Jesus comes back from the dead, he's not just declaring victory over death, but he's also declaring victory over the cause of death, over sin. Death wasn't able to keep its hold on Jesus because Jesus wasn't a sinner. Jesus lived a life in perfect harmony with God's good design. Now you might say, okay, well that's great that Jesus had victory over sin, but how does that help me? Well, one way of understanding how this helps you is is to put it like this. Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Because of our sin, we owe this debt of death. That is the wage we have earned for our sin. But Jesus didn't owe that debt, right? And yet he paid it. From Good Friday until Easter morning, he paid that debt. So he didn't need to pay it. So who was he paying for? Couldn't be for himself because he didn't owe anything. So he was paying it for us. So the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope that the debt of our sin has been taken care of. It's paid for. Now, I want to be careful here because I don't want to make it sound like what Jesus has done only frees us from the eternal consequences of sin, the punishment of sin. I also want us to realize that the resurrection of Jesus has power to free us from our compulsions to sin here and now. Don't get me wrong, the compulsion to sin is something that we're going to struggle with all our lives, Christian or not. It is an ongoing battle. But because Jesus has risen from the dead, there is power available to us 
through him to find victory over patterns of sin in our lives. We don't have to be controlled by them the same way that we once were. When we believe in him, Jesus imparts some of that resurrection power to us. The Bible says that he sends his Holy Spirit to live in us, and and the Holy Spirit directs us and empowers us and leads us. And that gives us strength over that enemy within. I actually think that one of the most compelling evidences of the resurrection is seeing resurrection power at work in somebody's life. I've heard a lot of stories over the years, maybe you have too, of people whose lives have been resurrected, figuratively speaking, because they've come to trust in Jesus, because they've come to know him. You know, people who had given up on life, people who were filled with hatred and bitterness and and, and unforgiveness and self-loathing, people who were enslaved to all kinds of addictions, and yet something happened. Something turned their lives upside down for the better. And it wasn't a self-help book. It wasn't a human philosophy. It was Jesus. They met the resurrected king, and the resurrected king resurrected them. You know, I don't know about you, but I have never heard someone say, I was addicted to hard drugs, I was a prostitute, I was a gang member, I was a violent criminal, but now I'm clean, I'm healthy, and I'm living to love and serve people. And it all started when one day I realized there's no God, and that I came from nothing, for nothing, and will eventually become nothing, and will just go into the ground and rot and die. And, And that was the thing that changed my life. That was the day that it all turned around. Nobody says that. People say, it all started when one day I met God and I realized that he loves me. Or it all started when, when I had a friend who loved me when no one else would and one day that friend told me that Jesus died to pay the price for my sins. What is the power to set us free from our sin? What is the power to resurrect a life? Not secular humanism, Not human philosophy, not positive thinking, but the resurrected king. Finally, uh, there's one more opponent that Jesus' resurrection demonstrates victory over. The third opponent is the devil and demons. Now I realize that in the skeptical postmodern culture that we're in, some people it's Some people think it's silly or superstitious to talk about this opponent. But regardless of what is fashionable in our culture, the Bible presents us with a certain view of the world. And part of that worldview is that there are unseen spiritual forces at work in the world. And some of those forces are evil and seek to harm us. Uh, They love to encourage us to give in to our sinful tendencies. They love to disrupt and destroy and cause disorder and harm in creation. And they love to inspire fear and hatred. And most of the time, when they're at work, it doesn't really look anything like the exorcist. Okay, so if the moment I say that, that's the first thing you're thinking about is head spinning around and that sort of thing. Settle down. That's, uh, That's not necessarily what I mean. Usually... These beings operate in much more subtle ways. C.S. Lewis said that we can fall into two opposite errors when it comes to how we think about these these beings. He said, 
Uh, one is to have an unhealthy fascination or curiosity about them. And the other is just to assume that they don't exist and that it's ridiculous to believe in them. And he says that demons are probably equally pleased with, with both of those conclusions um, because even the people who think that they don't exist can still be manipulated and affected uh, by them. So I think that most of the time, demonic forces like to work in a way where they can influence, but they can influence in a way where those who don't think they're real are easily able to maintain that illusion. However, I suspect, okay, I don't have proof on this, but I suspect that if we were able to poll everyone in America and get a truly honest answer from them, to the question, do you think you've ever had an encounter with what might be a demon? There would be a significant number of people who had stories to tell. I really believe that's true. Uh, back when I worked at UConn, I used to meet with a friend who worked there. And you know, we talked about faith sometimes, because he knew that I was a campus minister. And he wasn't sure what he believed. But one time, he, he said to me, you know, I am confident that there's something more than what we can see because I've, well, I've experienced things that felt like the dark side. And this was a very ordinary kind of guy, very rational person. It actually took multiple conversations before he volunteered, volunteered that information to me. And honestly, he didn't even want to talk about it very much. He didn't go into much detail. He just kind of said that. And, and left it at that. So he seemed very genuine. And I suspect that there are a lot of other people out there like him. Uh, people who carry these experiences, but they don't talk about them. Either because they feel like if they do talk about them, people are going to think they're crazy, or because they're not really sure what to make of them themselves. Um, so they just, they just don't talk about them. There's no real forum for that, you know. But whatever the case, okay, we don't have to live in fear because the resurrection shows that Jesus has victory over these spiritual forces. In Colossians 2, verse 15, it says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And just in case it's not clear, the powers and authorities that are referred to here are are demons and, and the devil. And what this is telling us is that by dying on the cross, Jesus rendered these spiritual beings powerless to condemn us. Because that is what these spiritual beings are really after. That is what they really love to do, is to condemn. They tell us that we're worthless. Okay? They tell us that God can never love us. They tell us that there's, we've done too many bad things for God to ever want anything to do with us. And sometimes they tell us, you know, God doesn't even exist. Uh, the name Satan actually means the accuser. And that's a very appropriate title because that is what the devil and demons do. They accuse us. If, if, you, uh, if you think of being in a courtroom where you're on trial and God is the judge, uh, the devil and his demons point the finger at us and say, you're guilty. They say, you are worthy of condemnation. You are worthy of death. But Jesus' death and resurrection disarm 
those accusations. Because through Jesus' death and resurrection, God the judge turns to us and he says, I've taken care of your debt. I've forgiven you. It has no power anymore. I don't care what they say. Their accusations are worthless. They've got no case. And what I want you to realize is if you ever hear a voice, could be a voice that's external to you, could be a voice coming from within that tells you lies, that tells you, you know, that, that uh, you, you, you don't belong to God, that God doesn't care about you, that God just wants to throw you away or hates you, you need to recognize that that voice is not the voice of God. And what what I encourage you to do is picture Jesus on the cross and then picture Jesus bursting out of the tomb and then say to those voices, you voices, you are liars, be silent. Jesus has the victory. You have no case against me. So, three enemies that we all face. Death, sin, and the devil. Three enemies that torment us, that try to hold us captive. But the resurrection is a declaration. These enemies do not have to win. Okay, Jesus is victorious over all three. And if we will trust and follow the victorious one, we can share in his victory. The resurrected one can resurrect us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that this morning we would recognize your victory and that we would experience it, it, Lord. I pray that we would feel that same joy that the the disciples felt on Easter morning, Lord. That we would know that you have been victorious and that we would celebrate that. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.